0: up to James chapter 5 uh, a few years ago we when we lived in Virginia um, I was uh, taking a, a I was doing some schoolwork at a, at a school in Louisville Kentucky and uh, so I would have to do a seminar um, once every you know six months or so and so I'd have to drive from Lynchburg over to Louisville which is about a seven hour drive and and uh, so there was one particular time when I was doing that and I had checked out from the library the audiobook book uh, called Unbroken. Um, and I don't know, I'm gonna put it up on the screen here, um, possibly, if the uh, clicker works, there it is. Uh, so I checked out the audiobook, and it was like 14 hours long, the audiobook, all these CDs of it or, or whatever. And so uh, about an hour into the seven-hour drive, I popped the first CD in to my player and was immediately in a trance listening to this book. Um, I just would go from one CD to the next and hastily pull the old one out that was done and throw the other one in as quick as I could, uh, to try to get through the book as quickly as I could. And if you're not familiar with this book, um, it's very well written and it's a true story. It's a story of a man named Louis Zamperini. Um, Louis just died in 2014, um, and it's a World War II story. Uh, well, some of it's World War II, but, uh, what happens in the beginning of the book is Louis is a star athlete raised in Southern California, and he ended up running the mile in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Uh, and he was very close to breaking a four minute mile, so exceptional athlete. And then after the Olympics, uh, World War II started obviously in 1939, and Louis ended up in the military and became a pilot um, flying and in the Pacific Theater. And in 1943, he was flying uh, his plane in, over the Pacific Ocean, and his plane was shot down. Um, and he and two of his friends ended up floating on uh, a life raft. They ended up in shark-infested waters, floating there for 47 days. Um, and they, two of the three of them, as you'll see in a second, survived. Uh, and they were <laughs> rescued by the Japanese Navy, they were taken to Japanese prison camps and spent two years there. And I won't go into the rest of the story um, because in some ways that's just getting going in the story. Um, But uh, Louis ended up surviving and coming back to the United States and then it continues on after that. Just an amazing life. Um, But the reason the book is called Unbroken is because of the constant endurance that he has to, to have in all of these different situations. I mean, he persists and endures in hope and, you know, they're unable to break him in the midst of all of these struggles. Um, He keeps looking ahead and and surviving. Uh, It's really an amazing, amazing story. But there's a section of the book that I want to read to you. It's just a paragraph. And it's from uh, the time when they're floating on the Pacific Ocean on this little life raft for 47 days. And there are three men that go into the life raft and only two of them make it out and are, are rescued at the end of this. And so here's what it says. I'll put it up on the screen for you, possibly. I think my clicker is not working this morning. All right. Here's what it says. Though all three men faced the same hardship, their differing perceptions of it appeared to be shaping their fates. Louis and Phil's hope displaced their fear and inspired them to work toward their survival. And each success renewed their physical and emotional vigor. Mac's resignation seemed to paralyze him. And the less he participated in their efforts to survive, the more he slipped. Though he did the least as the days passed, it was he who faded the most. Louis and Phil's optimism and Max's hopelessness were becoming self-fulfilling. And you can see in this that it's it's clear how each man's perception and perspective of the future shaped how they responded to the present and to the terrible events that they were enduring. Now, these, none of these guys, as far as I know, at this point in their lives, when they're on this raft, were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as followers of Christ, we certainly can learn something from their optimism, from their expectation of the future. And we, as believers in Christ, always have reason for optimism. We always have reason to look ahead to the future and expect that God is going to do us good, and he is on our side. And that is true no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're enduring in this present life. And so I would say patient endurance is always possible for us as believers in Christ because of what we know is coming in the future, and specifically because of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you'll see in this passage. Now, this overlaps, this idea of expecting good in the future from the Lord overlaps significantly with our passage from last week and the way that relates to our passage for this week. If you remember, if you were here from last week, we looked at James 5, verses 1 through 6, and in that passage, James is addressing these rich, wealthy landowners who were exploiting the poor, and they were doing this to try to grow their own wealth and to maintain their own wealth and their own power. And so in that passage, James calls them to repentance. He's very harsh with them and says judgment is coming upon them. And he also in that passage warns us as followers of Christ not to be caught up in their materialism and not to pursue wealth in the same way that they do. So he encourages us to live a different sort of lifestyle. But now in verses 7 through 11, he's going to transition and he's going to speak directly to followers of Christ. And he's going to say, no matter what happens, whether it's persecution or just general suffering and trials, you can endure with patience because of what you know is coming in the future. And so that's what we're going to look at today in verses 7 through 11. And here's the, the outline for the, the passage this morning. Three wise responses to suffering. Three wise responses to suffering. And the first one of these you'll see is in verses 7 and 8. And it's to be patient because the Lord is coming. Be patient because the Lord is coming. Now I want you to notice right away in verse 7, you can see the connection back to verses 1 through 6. Look what he says. Be patient, the command, therefore, brothers. And so he's directing our attention back to what he said in verses 1 through 6, and he's he's linking his instructions in verses 7 through 11 back to what he said in verses 1 through 6. And you also see that he turns his attention back to believers in Christ. He uses that that phrase or that word that he's been using throughout the book, brothers. So he's addressing them as as followers, uh, as those who are pursuing Christ the same way that he is. He calls them brothers. Brothers. And so here's what he's saying. Here's the connection he's making. If the wealthy and the powerful, the rich, are exploiting you, and if they're going to face judgment for that when Christ returns, if both of those things are true, they're exploiting you, you're suffering, and those who are doing it are going to face judgment, then in that case, you can be patient and you can endure. And so what he's telling them is that their outlook on the future will motivate endurance in the present. What they believe is coming for them in the future and for these wealthy landowners will change the way they view life in the present. And so the cultivation of patience And patience and hope and the expectation of a particular event in the future is going to determine how we live in the present. And that particular event, you'll see in verse 7, is the coming of the Lord. Look there. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, this idea of the coming of the Lord is something that's very specific in the New Testament. I mean, the Greek word, if you're a Bible student, you've probably heard this word before. It's parousia. And the idea is that the Lord Jesus is going to come back to earth, and he's going to return bodily to earth. I mean, it's a pretty simple concept in a lot of ways. Paul uses this word to talk about himself when he's away from a city, right? He writes to the believers at Philippi and says, I'm coming to you, right? I'm not there presently, and I'm coming to you. My body will be there, and my spirit will be there with you was the same thing that he says we need to expect regarding the Lord. He was present here on earth in his first coming, in the incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection. Then he departed and ascended to the Father, and he's going to come again bodily to us. It's going to be a real physical arrival. And why is that so important? What's going to happen when he comes? Well, the idea in the New Testament is that when the parousia happens and Christ returns, there will be judgment on the wicked and there will be the vindication of his people who are often persecuted and poor and, and suffer in this life. And so he's telling them, you can be patient until the coming of the Lord because when the Lord comes, he's going to set things right. And you can hope in that, even if it's difficult in the meantime. Now, this command here to be patient, and just generally the idea of patience, is, is not easy to cultivate. It's not one of those virtues that, is, that comes naturally and comes easy to us. And so we want to think carefully about what this looks like, and James is very helpful in that. In the rest of verse 7 and in verse 8, he's going to describe patience to us, and he gives kind of three characteristics of patience. So I'm going to read the rest of verses 7 and 8, and then we'll talk about what it looks like. See, he says in verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now in verse 7, he paints what I think is this beautiful picture of a farmer. And this farmer has planted seed in the ground, and this farmer is waiting... Patiently for the fruit that will come from those seeds. And he's waiting for it, and it says that he views it as something that is precious. Look there, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. And so I think in this, there's this idea that he's eagerly anticipating what's coming, he knows that it's valuable. He knows that it's good, and he has planted these seeds, and he's anticipating it, and so he's able to wait with patience for it. We often, and I often, think of waiting for something as an ordeal. There's some element of dread in waiting. Um, Whether it's waiting at the doctor's office, nobody wants to sit in the lobby, or now to sit in your car and then have them text you so that you can go into the doctor's office, right? But nobody wants to sit and wait to go into the doctor's office. Nobody wants to sit and wait at a stoplight when there doesn't appear to be any reason for it to be read. There's no one coming this way. Why can't I go this way? I don't want to sit here and wait for this, right? No one wants to sit and wait for their accountant to get their tax information back to them, tell them that they owe a bunch of money. There's a waiting for that with dread, right? That's not the sort of waiting that James is describing here. He's describing waiting that doesn't dread the future, but anticipates it and knows that something good is coming. The waiting that he's describing in patience here is more like a child going to bed on December 24th and knowing that when that child wakes up in the morning, there's going to be a Christmas tree with presents, good, eagerly anticipated presents all around it. That's the sort of eager anticipation for something precious that James is describing here. And so I would say patience is anticipation, eagerness. But what's interesting too is that patience is also comes when we're waiting for something that's outside of our control. And so there's an element of trust and confidence that comes from relying on the Lord Look here what the farmer is waiting for, or what the farmer is waiting for. It's something that is outside of his control. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. The farmer has no control over the rain, does he? There's nothing he can do about it. He has to sit and eagerly wait and patiently wait. And he has to... To rely on the Lord to come through and to bring the rain. I mean, Deuteronomy describes it like this, Deuteronomy eleven fourteen. He, God, will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. God's the one who determines when the rain comes. And so to wait with patience means to anticipate and to be confident, but to have to trust the Lord for the rain to come. Only God knows when the rain will come and only God knows when the Lord will return, when Christ will come back to the earth. And only God knows when Christ will come back and the rich will be judged, the wicked landowners will be judged and his people will receive vindication. That's up to God. And so patience here means to wait eagerly, but to wait confidently and to wait trusting that the Lord will do what he says he's going to do and that he will do it in his time. And if we're honest, his timing is rarely our timing. It's not when we think it should happen. But we have to trust that he knows what is best, and we can rely on him. And while that's true, and he's the only one who knows when it will happen, and we don't know, there is a sense in which this is going to happen sooner than we think it is. Look at verse 8. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's not going to be as long as we think it is. It's not going to take forever. When James describes the coming of the Lord as at hand, what he's saying is the the effects of this are already beginning to be felt. It's coming. It's nearer than you think it is. We talked last time about how we're in the last days, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so James is saying it's imminent. It's going to happen. I was talking this morning with Ron LaFrenier about uh, anniversaries, and they're celebrating their 45th anniversary. Uh, here in a couple months, and uh, we just celebrated our 16th, which is kind of puny compared to 45. Um, But Ron was saying, you know, as the years go on, it seems like it goes quicker. It's like you're at 16, and then all of a sudden, you're at 45 years of marriage. And I think that's a little bit of what James is describing here. It's at hand. It's coming, and it's going to get here quicker than you realize and quicker than you think it is. And so when you understand that, there is this sense of how you can wait with patience and you can endure because it's at hand. The effects are already beginning to be felt. And so you can do what James says in verse eight. Look there. You also be patient, establish your hearts. When you know that the Lord is coming back and it's going to happen sooner than you think it is, then you can strengthen your heart with that reality. You know he's coming. He's coming and he's coming soon and so there can be resolve in your heart your heart can can grow in firmness and strength to endure what you have to endure in this life with eager anticipation for him to return so we can wait patiently because we know he's working now and he's going to return as he promised in the future so I would, I would maybe describe both of these verses. I would sort of frame them up, verses 7 and 8, and the, the idea of patience like this. I would say it's, it's like a soldier and his group who are on his squad who are on top of a hill, and they're bunkered down, and they're surrounded by the enemy, and the enemy has many more men than they do, and the enemy is advancing quickly to try to take that position on the hill. And these guys have to try to hold their position as long as they can. And while they're fighting and while they're trying to hold their position, they see their fighter jets fly overhead and begin to assault the enemy's position from the air. And they know when they see those fighter jets fly from their own country, they know that reinforcements on the ground are right behind them and they're coming soon. And so, because of that confidence, and because they know that help is at hand and it's coming soon, they can turn their attention to the fight and to endurance and to holding their position with eager anticipation. And they can do it with confidence and they can hold out a little while longer. Be patient because the Lord is coming. Be patient because he's promised to arrive and to set things right. And he's promised to vindicate his people and to judge the wicked. And so rest in that and rely in that and continue to obey him and to work for him and endure. And so that's our first wise response to suffering. To be patient because the Lord is coming. The second wise response is found in verse 9. Don't grumble because the judge is near. And when you first read verse 9, if you're kind of reading the flow of the passage here, verse 9 seems to be out of place. We're talking about patient endurance of suffering. Why why are we talking about grumbling all of a sudden? But it does make sense because one of the most natural sinful responses to suffering is to grumble, isn't it? It's to complain. And it's to complain, certainly, about the, about the circumstances, but it's also to complain to and about other people. We sort of take out our frustration on one another and on those around us. So that's why James exhorts us like he does in verse 9. Look there. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We aren't truly waiting with patience when we begin to grumble and we begin to complain. So we're, we've shifted at that point over to impatience. We're starting to be characterized by impatience. So if you take the example of the farmer, right, in verse 7, he's supposed to wait patiently for the rain that is coming. But if the rain doesn't come when he thinks it should come, and he really knows that it needs to come so that his seed will grow into fruit that he can harvest, he starts to get a little frustrated. Maybe he takes that out on his spouse and on his kids. He, gets to, he starts to be short with them. Maybe he even turns it on the Lord and on the circumstances, and he gets, he gets to where he's griping about, about the rain not coming, even though he has no control over it at all. And When that happens, when complaining enters our hearts, now we've stopped trusting God's providence and his care for us. We don't think he's doing a good job of managing the universe. Now James has been quite clear throughout this book that sins of the tongue are so vital for us to, to put away if we're going to grow in wisdom and, and wholeness. I mean, let me remind you of a couple of things he said. James 3 in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And so this, our grumbling hard attitude is significant in our, in our growth in wholeness and holiness. Now the problem with complaining and grumbling is very similar to the problem that James exposed in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Look there, probably right across your page. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And this is the same sin that is at root when we grumble is when we speak evil against one another. When you begin to grumble and complain, we're showing dissatisfaction with the way God has ordered life. And I'm saying, essentially, I think I could do a better job of it than you. So when I complain, I'm saying, God, you're not doing this right, quite right. I, I know you think I really need these difficult circumstances right now, but I don't think I need these things. And I... I kind of think I know better how to order things. And so I'm just going to let everyone else know that I really could do a better job. And when you say that or when you grumble in that way, you're putting yourself as a judge. And James says the obvious problem with that in verse 9 is that you will be judged for how you use your words. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You and I will be held accountable for our words. We'll be held accountable for how we do them. And the very fact of Christ's return and how imminent it is, how close at hand it is, should make us choose our words carefully and with concern. And so we've seen two wise responses to suffering this morning so far. Be patient because the Lord's coming. And then also focused on the future, don't grumble, because the judge is near. The last wise response is found in verses 10 and 11. Imitate the faithful because of the Lord's character. Imitate the faithful because of the Lord's character. Now, one of the best ways to learn a new skill, to put on a new character quality or to grow in a new character quality is to watch someone who exemplifies it or possesses that skill and to imitate them, to learn from them. I told the people in the first service that we have a four-year-old right now who is in full imitation mode, at least when he's not picking on his older siblings. But Cole wears a football jersey, Gray wants to wear a football jersey. He's in imitation mode, and that's how God designed us, right? We're image bearers. We're made to reflect God, to imitate him, and we do that in all of our relationships, in all of our circumstances. We reflect, we image, and so for us to imitate others is one of the best ways to acquire a skill or to put on a virtue, and that's exactly what James is pointing us to here. And he's going to give us two examples of those that we want to learn from and we want to imitate in how they handled suffering and trials. The first one of these is found in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience. And so you could sort of put those words together and say patient, suffering. One idea. Suffering with patience. So as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in The name of the Lord. So the Old Testament prophets received the word from God, their conduit, right? They get a word from God and they convey that word faithfully and accurately to the people of Israel, to the king, maybe even to pagan nations. That was their job. Well, when they fulfilled their job, many times the idol-worshipping people that they were speaking to were not real happy with the prophets for what they were saying. And so it did not go well for the prophets often. They suffered, many of them, tremendously for what they did. James holds them up here as an example of patient endurance in the midst of persecution and suffering and difficulty. Hebrews 11 talks about, I think, the prophets, and it does so in this this chapter on faith. Let me read this to you. Verses 36 to 40, Others "'Suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. "'They were stoned, they were sawn in two, "'which tradition says was the prophet Isaiah, sawed in half. "'They were killed with the sword. "'They went about in skins of sheep and goats, "'destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, "'wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. "'And all these, though commended through their faith, "'did not receive what was promised.' Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so we learn from their example. We see their faith and we imitate it. And I think this in chapter Hebrews 11, verse 13, this is the heart of their faith. This is how they were to endure this perspective. I think you could put this over every single example of faith in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. You get that sense of eager anticipation, right? They greeted them. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And that's the perspective that allowed them to endure in the midst of this. They were confident in the future. They were confident in the God who held the future. They knew that he had good for them, even beyond their death. They knew they were not citizens of this world, primarily. But their home country was somewhere else. And so they were living for that home country and anticipating being there. And because of that perspective, they were able to endure, to patiently suffer. And so you and I should read about those people and and hold them in high esteem. Look at the beginning of verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast, right? We, We see their example. We read about what they went through in Hebrews 11 and we say, I want to be like that. Our hearts are pulled up and exalted to desire to imitate them in what they did and how they remained steadfast and faithful. There's something attractive about that sort of consistency, isn't there? And so the prophets are an example, but James also gives us another example. Look at verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job. Uh, It's a long one, 42 chapters. Almost the entire book is a poem. It's an epic masterpiece of literature, and certainly a masterpiece of of Scripture, conveying the perspective of a sovereign and caring God to us, even in the midst of suffering. But when you turn to Job, Job chapter 1, you find a man named Job who is a righteous man, right? One of the first things we learn about him, he's a righteous man, he fears God, and he shuns evil. And so... We meet this man, Job, who's very wealthy and who also walks with the Lord in righteousness and holiness. And we find out something that Job doesn't know, that behind the scenes in the courtroom of heaven, the accuser, Satan, approaches God and asks about Job and says, basically makes an accusation, that Job is only faithful because God has blessed him so much. And so God gives Satan permission to assault Job with unbelievable Trials, And you read in chapter 1, that's exactly what happens. I mean, the the events of Job chapter 1 happen so quickly to Job, one after the other. And his children are killed. All of his children are taken away from him. All of his wealth is either stolen or destroyed. I mean, it, it makes everything in 2020 look like child's play compared to what's happening to him. And all of that happens to him. And then you flip over to Job chapter 2, and Satan comes back again and gets God's permission to attack his health, only to leave him alive. And so at the end of Job 2, you have this guy who's lost all of his family, or all of his children, all of his wealth, all of his financial resources, and his health has been attacked to the point where he's sitting on a... Dust heap with a piece of broken pottery, because that's basically all he has left, and he's got such bad sores on his body that he's scraping them with the broken pottery to try to get some sense of relief. I mean, this is a guy who has endured. And his initial response to this is amazing, right? I mean, at the end of chapter one, and and it's almost the same thing at the end of chapter two, but I mean, look how he, he responds. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It's an amazing response that he has. And what's crazy is if we only read Job 1 and 2, and if we stop there, and we stop with this response, then we may get the impression that Job's steadfastness in suffering is sort of like a stoic response. Man, he, he is a, he's a rock. Job doesn't have any emotions. He has the right theology all the time, and it plays itself out, and he never suffers emotionally at all from the suffering and the difficulty and the trials that he's gone through. And you may get that impression if you only read Job one. And two, But as you get into the book, you get into chapter 3, you find Job's friends come to him, and they're trying to comfort him, but they're basically telling him the reason he's suffering is because he's been sinning, he's been doing things wrong, and so this is God's judgment. And you see as you begin to read the rest of the book of Job that it's not so easy for Job to respond. I'll show you some examples of this. Job chapter three, look at this. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. I mean, Job is wishing he wasn't he wouldn't have even been born at this point. Job 17. My spirit is broken. I mean, this is not an unemotional, stoic response to trials, is it? My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. And so as you read the book of Job, chapter after chapter, you find Job struggling. He's wrestling with why this is happening to him, and he's asking questions, and he's emotionally coming unglued And it's tough. But then as you read through it too, you find mixed in the middle of these struggles emotionally, you find things like this in Job 19. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. And so you've got Job struggling, and then you've got Job affirming his confidence in the Lord and trusting. And so, yeah, he struggled, but he continued to believe the right things, and that continued to shape his response to difficulty. And so here's what I think James is getting at when he says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Steadfastness doesn't mean there's no emotion, doesn't mean there's no anguish of soul, doesn't mean there's no struggle and difficulty. Patient suffering involves grief, it involves questions, it involves difficulty of heart. At times, it may involve wishing I'd never even been born. But Job, according to James, is an example of steadfast trust in the Lord because he started well and he ended well. And he struggled but maintained his faith in the Lord in the middle. If you want to, I'd encourage you to flip back in your Bible, hold your finger in James 5, but flip back to Job 42. Job 42. Job never abandoned his faith, and he always humbly submitted to the Lord. Listen to this. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Never abandoned his faith. He submitted humbly to God's sovereign and good hand. And even here at the end, when everything had gone wrong, after all this struggle and conversation, he says, Lord, you can do all things. And I humbly submit to your ordering of my life. How was he able to do this? Flip back to James, but hold your finger in Job 42. James 5.11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Where have we seen that? Where is James pointing us to to see the purpose of God and to see his compassion and mercy to someone who's in the midst of trial? Which by implication means every one of his followers who are in the midst of suffering and difficulties. Where have we seen that? We've seen it at the end of the book of Job. Go back to Job 42. The purpose or the outcome of God is found in Job 42. 42, God is compassionate and merciful. Look at verse seven. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. God is compassionate and merciful even to these three friends in how they misrepresented God. God forgives their misrepresentation and he is compassionate and merciful to them. And what is his purpose in this? It's to do good to his people. Keep reading, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and com- comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job, more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters, goes through their names there, verse 15, and in all the land there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, and after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations And Job died, an old man, and full of days. This story is not promising double the wealth if you lose some in a time of trial and suffering. But this story is showing God's disposition toward his people. He is compassionate, and he is merciful, and he desires to do us good. He is compassionate for his people in that he has affection for them, And he is merciful in that when we are in struggles and trials, he has pity on us. He empathizes with us. He sees us in our miserable condition and desires to help. And so the the outcome in Job is that God forgives Job's friends. And he blesses Job financially and with more children. He restores Job's life to him. And shows his own care and concern for his people. Now, here's the thing about Job. Job had no idea that all of this was going to happen at the end. In the midst of struggles, he had no expectation of any of this. But what did he do? Yeah, he fought emotionally. It was hard. But he continued to affirm the character of God, he continued to trust the character of God. And he said, even if I don't know what you're doing, I'm going to to rely on you and to trust in you. And so James is saying to us, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Imitate that. When you're suffering, remember. Remember what happened to Job. And even if it's not in this life, know that God is compassionate and merciful and he is going to do good to you. Because he's coming back. Remember his character. Fight for faith in the compassion and mercy of God and know that his purpose is to do us good and to bring himself glory. And it's to do those things even in the midst and even through our most difficult times of suffering and trials. Let's pray. Father, strengthen our hearts. Establish us, build us up, Lord, in the faith. Give us more anticipation for your return. Give us more confidence in you that your coming is at hand. Help us to delight in the future that we have in you. And help us to rest and trust in your character in the midst of difficult days. Thank you that you are a rock. Thank you that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You always accomplish the goal and the end that you have in mind. Help us to rely on that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.